Today I spoke with Ben Stimson. He's a therapist, spiritual director, and now an author. You know, he specializes in a few different uh, areas of study, uh, religion, medieval, folklore, spirituality. Uh, he is a very knowledgeable person, you know, and in his book, Ancestral Whispers, uh, A Guide to Developing Ancestral Veneration Practices, it's available now, and it is an amazing dive into looking into your ancestral past to heal your present self, which is really powerful. Be sure to check out all of his links below in the show description notes. This is a fantastic conversation where we covered everything from childhood and longing for home and what being neurodivergent really means and getting to a place of amazing, amazing stature. So without further ado, my conversation with Ben Stimson. Before we get into the episode, some housekeeping. Got to have some housekeeping. Head over to navigatingneurodivergence.org for some goodies. There's going to be links there to purchase my book, Tools for Navigating Neurodivergence, clips and links from all my guests recently. Uh, also, you can get a free copy of Condensed Tools for Navigating Neurodivergence there. And, you know, one of my favorite things, you can uh, join the Tools for Navigating Neurodivergence support group on Facebook. It's easy. It's really, it's not that hard to do. But please do come and join us. Uh, lots of good stuff there. Uh, also, there's going to be links to all my social media, all the different blogs, videos, and all, just in case you need to get in contact with me and get a hold of me, whatever. And, uh, and if you want more content, that's the way to go. But uh, that is our little housekeeping. Just head over to navigatingneurodivergence.org. Hello and welcome once again. Now, Ben, I have you here, and I have to say, when the... In the phrase ancestor veneration came across in uh, the notes that you had sent to me. My, I went on a little deep dive, but um, before we get to that, how are you doing, Ben? <laughs> I'm doing amazing. I'm really on top of things. I, um, last week, my uh, school's semester schedule dropped, and so I basically just went through. It was like 12 o'clock midnight, and uh, I spent three hours literally just creating my calendar. So that's a nice thing with my neurodivergence is that I get things done when I need to because I have to. So I'm doing great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that that is the uh, the spark of, of inspiration for all of us. Like, oh God, it's happening. We have a deadline. It's we need to get this done now. So, yes. and we do it in in alarming fashion. <laughs> it's true. But uh, so when I when I even mention you know. Ancestor veneration. Explain what that is, just because. First of all, that's that's a phrase of yours. Like I, I have, I have no idea what that is. What what's going no, on? Totally. I know what ancestors are. I think I know what veneration is. But 
No, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Well, it's 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 it really is only a small part of my overall work, but it's it became kind of the foundation stone for a lot of my own personal development and my own personal work. Um, I work as a therapist, and so when I first started to kind of put the book together, um, kind of the ancestors was like kind of that first first introductory thing I wanted to work and, and offer to clients. So the main thing with ancestor veneration is uh, the movie Coco. So the idea is it's not mourning the ancestors, it's not mourning the dead, it's not um, kind of going into grief, it's more about seeing the ancestors in however way they show up, whether it be in a spiritual sense, whether it be as kind of that legacy in the family, um, even culturally, um, in the here and now. And so veneration is, as a spiritual practice, it's about honoring the ancestors how they're showing up now and not just continually seeing them as in the past. So an example of this would be um, a form of veneration in a spiritual sense would be to pray for the dead um, and their existence here and now as opposed to um, constantly be lamenting and thinking of them in the past and, and going into that grief cycle. So in many ways veneration is really about that connection of the ancestors to, uh, to, to our life now mm. and and bringing them into the living space. Oh, wow. You know, yes. that's something that I, I... Okay. When you were a kid, <laughs> did you ever think that this is the path that I was going down? Like, to, like, go into this thing of, of, of spirituality and folklore and the, just the connection to our ancestors? <laughs> like, it was it was little Ben like, yeah, totally, I'm I'm on board for this. <laughs> Strangely, no. I actually, uh, maybe the spiritual life, maybe. Because um, when I was a kid, like, one of my earliest memories was going to the zoo and uh, and seeing elephants. So I wanted to be a zoologist um, before I even knew what that word meant. Um, I also wanted to be a nun, weirdly. I don't know why. <laughs> I also wanted to be a lawyer, too, because uh, um, Columbo and uh, Perry Mason were big back then. So I was like, yeah, I want to be a lawyer. So, no, I had no idea that I would... Uh, end up being a published author, that I would be a, 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 a professional therapist, um, that I would be going back and doing medieval studies and classical studies in university, like none of it no. was in my purview, you know. Yeah, that's, and that, I find it always interesting because there's always, you're going through life and, you know, starting where you did in childhood, you, you were born in the UK, right? I was, yes, okay. I was born in the UK. And when you were there... Do you have any memory of your childhood there? Because you you came you came across the the pond basically, and then I did yes. Well, yeah. so that's that's the sad thing about my own childhood is that I was old enough to still remember back home. My younger brother, who was six at the time, he doesn't really remember back home. So he's totally a Canadian kid. He grew up in Canada. He's Canadian for all intents and purposes, right? But I was old enough that I still have very vivid memories of, of the UK. Mm -hmm. And uh, and particularly because of some of the things that we'll get into it, some of the things that I had to, uh, had to uh, some of my early childhood memories. Um, and so home really has been a big part of my life, even though I've lived over in Canada for so long. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, but yes, a lot of, I have a lot of core memories over there. I, I see the seeds of, of your future. <laughs> right now <laughs> yeah uh, with home being such and that, that's that i think i think everyone has that that 
that uh, feeling inside where they they have that longing for home. Uh, and sometimes, even if they're like, this is the house I was raised in, this is the house my parents were raised in, but like, there's always an inkling to, to reconnect with the past like that. Um, I know Absolutely. For, for, for me, it was like finding out about like my father, like everyone goes, oh, you know, you're American. I'm like, yeah, I was born in the U.S., born in New York. And I was like, but my dad wasn't. My dad was born in Germany. And like mm. that lineage is like Hungarian and Romanian. And like, I was like, well, now I want to learn all about that. And you start like <laughs> deep diving into your family's history. And you're like, wow, this goes, this goes far. It's not just like, you know, mm-hmm. you, you were here and just kind of went with it. <laughs> <laughs> this is the thing. This is what people, I, I especially. So a lot of my work, a lot of my therapy work, is around narrative, and 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 how narrative shows up in somebody's life to help them or hinder them, depending, um, live their life, right? And oftentimes, because of the way that family story is is still is still existing with us and and follows us through life. Um, that idea that you know our story is connected to those ancestors from, from in your case Germany and Romania and Hungary and and, and that whole lineage, right? The idea that that legacy is still is still in you, and you are the legacy of their experiences, um, can often again create issues and or, or or create potential for a lot of people. And so a lot of my work, um, especially around the ancestor stuff, is to understand that that they're still a part of your life, even if just in story. Um, and so then it's taking the reins and understanding how um, how you were created from that, so that you can make then choices. You know, I don't really feel connected to that part of that legacy, and so I'm not going to carry that forward. I'm, I really feel strongly with this, you know, this German legacy, so I'm going to carry that forward, right? And that sense of home is 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 really a palpable thing. Yeah, yeah, I I, I feel it too. Like I feel that sense of of, of pride when, like I I see certain things. I see, especially when I see um like where my father came from and like the town, the, well, it's not even the town. Well, it is now, but it wasn't then. And I'm, and I'm just, and I feel like I need to go there. I need to see it. I need to, and it's something that's still, it's like one of those bucket list items where I'm like, I need to do that. And of course my mother's side, was same thing, but Italy was her thing. So I'm going to have some nice places to visit. Um, when I start tracking down the lineage, but, um, <laughs> but it's, um, I, I feel connected to it, um, and I think that's super important um, because there are a lot of positives to it. Now, f- of course, mm-hmm. like you said, there's there's you can't have positives without negatives. So this there, is a thing. Yeah, there are a lot of negatives that come from that sort of like uh, uh, turmoil and and hardship that the mm-hmm. that the family had gone through and went through. You know during both world wars and even well before then you know it's it's um when you when you find somebody especially like yourself that can help guide people through that like um understanding that is it's um a valuable tool uh, especially when it when you start lining up things or like oh yeah that is why i like impulsively spend things or why i try to make make sure that I don't lose 
my home, my job or whatever, even if I don't like it because of these traumas and things that I had in that lineage. So I, I think that's, mm -hmm. that's really fascinating. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it's something that again it comes back to that idea of is this something inbuilt into us or is this something that we're expected because of the family culture, right? And trauma is one of those really fascinating things where it will show up again and again and again down the family line, not mm -hmm. because the individuals had that initial trauma but because the family culture I, I work a lot with family systems and the family culture develops within itself quite organically ways of coping and so like with the world wars right that was such a shock to Europe that was such a, sh a massive shock to the world even outside of Europe and there are still issues even now however like 80 years later over 100 years later from those I know in Germany, particularly, my, my cousin is half German, um, there's a lot of, 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 of healing that had to be done in the past 30 years around that issue. And, you know, people, people outside of Germany, they, they, they are shocked at how casual people are with it, right? But it yeah. isn't a casual piece. It's the, they've put the work in culturally to really understand what happened and to make sure that it didn't happen again. You know, yeah, there's a lot of pieces to that. Yeah, there, there definitely is. Mm -hmm. So um, to get back to this longing for home, um, when when did you uh, come over to Canada and when when did you put your you know family put your roots down there like when was when because obviously that's a huge pivotal pivotal piv, yep i can't say the word right now it's an <laughs> important point of time for you mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah i came over in 1995 so i was mm -hmm. eight and a half years old i'm a 1986 baby just turned 37 and um so eight and a half years old and uh and and uh, kind of be, life before Canada was uh, not a struggle, even though I had things I had to deal with. So um, I was diagnosed with dyspraxia when I was I was a kid, and I had to go through extensive speech therapy. That's where my neurodivergence comes in, and uh, and my family and the school system over there and the friends that I had growing up, um, they did a wonderful job just making it normal. I was it was mm. such a normalized part of my life. You know, every few days. I would take a taxi to another school and do speech therapy and come back, right? It was not an issue that I had to use sign language to communicate um, for a few years of my life before I learned how to be able to talk. Yeah. And, uh, and it was just a normal thing. And then I came over to Canada and we moved to... Uh, we, yeah, right? I think you can anticipate what's going to happen. I was suddenly different in every yeah. way. Every I was, way. I was in every way, right? Um, and the school system over here was years behind the UK. Mm -hmm. Absolutely years behind the UK. They didn't, they had never heard of my condition, which dyspraxia is one of those, like it's a very well-known thing. They had never heard of it. Um, they didn't know how to treat it. They didn't know how to support me. And they thought putting me into a reading group was going to help me. <sighs> and it didn't, right? Yeah. Oh my God. Uh, yeah. Uh, I have to say it's it's something that you know here we are in 2023 and and mm -hmm. it is I like to think it's more normalized now that you know of, of I call them all the uh the the dis 
um, <laughs> diagnoses because there's a ton of them. Oh, there's um, tons, yeah. And, you know, like dyslexia, dys- dyspraxia, dyscalculia. Um, dyscal- dyscal- yeah, yeah, I can never say <laughs> I I have it. I can never say it. <laughs> Still, I trip up on the words. Um, but I, I always, back then, even for me, it would have been, I was born in 81, and elementary school was fine up to a point and then mm-hmm. I had this issue where I just I couldn't express myself fully um, mm-hmm. I had no pro- I had a I had a college reading level I was tested on all these things it was great I just had problem speaking and I had a speech impediment so what do they do they put me in special education mm-hmm. and I know what kind of blow that did to me. So um, I can only imagine, well, you can tell me. Mm-hmm. How did that do for your psyche at, at uh, coming across the pond like that? <laughs> well, I, I, in, in truth, I think because of how, um, I kind of how our move went. So eight and a half years old, we move over and we, I, I'm, we, we moved to a little tiny, well, we moved to a small city north of Toronto for two years. Mm. And it was only ever going to be temporary accommodation until kind of a sale of a house back home went through and, and, uh, and they, they, they decided what they wanted to do. So then they moved from a small city to the middle of nowhere, like literally like <laughs> Ships Creek kind of view, right? Yeah. <laughs> and actually where I grew up is only a few hours away from where they filmed Shits Creek. So that kind of small town Ontario thing. Yeah. Um, and, you know, everybody was related to each other. I wasn't. Um, it was a little tiny village of 800 people. So really very small. Oh, wow. And... Um, and and really that like the, the local school board had no idea what they were dealing with they didn't have any supports um and and so putting me into this reading group even though it was like it wasn't like it was integrated it wasn't special ed where it was completely segregated from the rest of the of the of the of the school um it was still one of those like i'm not sure what i'm doing here like and 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 in truth like again the school board hadn't even heard of what of my diagnosis so it was like i went through you know speech therapy where it was hands-on where it was integrated where it was you know it was just a normal part it was a language unit um and then to come over here and and them not even know and so i remember like i would get into because 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 of a way that kind of how I learned English, I, like I knew English, but I couldn't communicate it, right? And mm-hmm. so a lot of the words that I was using were bigger words because of speech therapy. Like the, the uh, and growing up in Wales too, my my, um, my speech pathologist, um, she had a Welsh accent and she was fluent in Welsh. So for, for her, it was very important for, that I learned bigger words to really test out the muscles, right? So mm. my language was much more advanced than, than my, my level. Mm. And, uh, and that confused the teachers. They had no idea what to do with this kid. And so they would often be correcting me. Oh, no, that's too big of a word. Don't be using that word. Um, I remember I, I had an argument with one of the teachers um, 
because I and I'm not sure wh why this was happening, but I um, I wasn't capitalizing anything. So I was uh, uh, handwriting. I wasn't capitalizing anything, um, or I wasn't capitalizing my name, something like that. Mm. And uh, and it has like I understand it now. It was because of how I was perceiving the letters. Um, but they they tried to make me feel like, or they might try to make suggest that I was I was uh, I was dumb because of that. And I'm like. You know, like really horrific. And I, to be growing up in the same town as most of my teachers, years later, I pulled them aside and I stripped them down for it. And mm. uh, of course, they, you know, egotistical and whatnot. But um, yeah, yeah, it was just not a great situation. It was yeah. not a great situation. That's it's harrowing when you hear it too, because it's like yeah. these are the people that are in charge of molding the minds of the future generation. <laughs> This is the thing, right? Yeah, and I I know for me my my turning point was for me personally was in fourth grade when mm -hmm. I was in advanced classes. But what happened was I had been answering, you know, everyone's answering questions that the teacher was calling out, and I answered a, a complex uh, logic question that she was asking. It was like a fun, like oh, we're gonna do these fun logic puzzles and. Mm -hmm. She rattled it out, and I wrote, I wrote my hand. I was like, hey, yeah, this is the answer. And she goes, well, how did you get that answer? And my brain just went, I don't know. I don't know. And, like, I couldn't articulate how I right. put A, B, C together to get, you know, E. And I was like, I don't know. And she goes, what are you, stupid? Uh, I was like, oh, okay. I guess I am. And I literally hated school after that point. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right. The narrative. You accepted that narrative that you were yep. stupid, right? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah that Absolutely. It, it took um, a long time and it wasn't until probably about a couple of years ago that I realized that I was holding on to that that story of like, Yeah, I am right. stupid. And it's like, Oh, good God. Yeah. <laughs> This is a very typical struggle. I see it a lot with my clients, right? Those of us who are neurodivergent, we, we, we grow up in a situation where there is a system that is trying to force you into a, a, a particular peg. And if you don't, if you don't belong in that peg, you can't think in that way, then you're made to just fall through the cracks or you're just past 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 right yep. and unfortunately in the smaller towns uh, and smaller communities um it, it it becomes really it becomes really dangerous because yeah. the local the local teachers many of them i know there's a shift going on um so i don't want to make a generalization but when we were growing up right many of the teachers had been in that community for years they were so yeah. connected and, and 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 their education often most of them were from the 70s and in the 80s there was a big a big shift in in education um in north america so like i remember i, I remember a lot of the the really intelligent uh, kids I went to school with who ended up just because they they weren't getting support for undiagnosed ADHD they weren't getting support for being stimulated right um, mm. they ended up resorting to drugs and alcohol and whatnot because they just didn't like they just couldn't they ju they weren't being stimulated they weren't being yeah. um, you know challenged and so yeah I you know I, I think back to my time in school because i similar thing is people ask me like, like oh you grew up in new york I'm like not new york city mm -hmm. i lived in upstate new york and my town 
had roughly about the same. It was less than a thousand when I graduated high school, mm-hmm. which was funny because of our like the town only had about a thousand people, but our high school had about two thousand people in it because oh, of right. the boundaries of the school district. But um, it was a small town, and the mm-hmm. teachers there all, you know, they'd been in those positions f- forever. Small town mentality. Everyone knew each other, and it was always that. It was basically as soon as I, I was like, I'm 18. I barely graduated, but you know, hooray, I graduated. I need to get out of here, and I, I left as soon as I could. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Where, yeah. Whereabouts in upstate New York, if I may ask? Uh, it's a little town called Pine Pine Bush. Um, Pine and Bush. It's claim to fame, which you know, I'm I'm all about it. Uh, but they finally embraced it themselves about ten years ago. I think um, it was they used to be on the show Sightings uh, in North America all the time for all the UFO <laughs> phenomena that would go on in and around town, um, which always made me laugh. I was like, "Oh, look, we're on this TV show a whole bunch as a hotbed for UFO activity in North America." I'm like, oh. but they finally embraced it like about ten years ago. They started doing like. Um, like an annual UFO festival now. <laughs> oh, I love it. I love so, it. That's good. That's they, good. <laughs> they, they definitely embrace the weirdness, which uh, I, I kind of laugh because it, it, if it wasn't for the people, it would be, it's like that it's right down the middle. It's like, man, this is a great quirky town, but I could never live there because mm-hmm. the people here are just horrible or yeah. just not on, in touch with reality. So, but it's it's one of those things. If you look at it from the outside, you're like, "Wow, this is a fascinating place." <laughs> <laughs> Especially because it's only um, about sixty miles from New York City. You would never guess. Oh, okay, it's okay. It's like wow. up in the mountains, and right. you're just like you wait, you're only an hour away from New York City. I'm like, yeah, mm-hmm. but it's you know, UFO country in the woods and with rivers and <laughs> mountains. So. Mm-hmm. <laughs> But uh, yeah, it, it was it was definitely strange to go through that, um, you know. And but I think, I mean, I went undiagnosed until I was thirty nine. So I, for me, it was like I, I had no idea what was going on. I thought everyone was kind of like struggling, like I was. So when I got out of high school and moved away, I moved to Florida for college, and I was like, all right, I'm out trying to find trying to make my way and find my way um and i just i had no idea what i was doing uh, a lot of people don't but i truly didn't <laughs> and uh, i tell people all the time that i didn't find out what i wanted to be when i grew up until i was 36 <laughs> and that's when i picked up a camera um not even like purposefully to do photography. Uh, it was for work when I was working in radio. Somebody just needed photos of a live performance that we had in studio. I was like, all right. And then everyone kind of looked at them and said, who did you get to shoot this? Because this looks really good. I'm like, I, I did. Wow. I go, Are you a mm-hmm. photographer? I'm like, no, you know, I, in high school we did photography and did darkroom stuff and it was fun, but I just, mm-hmm never went back to it and then 20 years later that's I glommed onto it um and then that started my path to where I am now which is it's a very weird path but <laughs> get to that later so 
going back to you, you're, you're going through the small town. It is the small town blues because it's something that anyone that isn't, that's like a neurotypical person. I'm like, yeah, it's just living in the small town. You know, people are assholes and sometimes, you know, stupid shit happens. And you're like, mm, no, 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 no. <laughs> On this side of the fence, what happens is like everyone hates you <laughs> because mm. you're different. <laughs> And it's not even a perceived notion because you, it seems like in those small town settings, it, it is, they don't have to like pull their punches or, or put a filter on. They can just tell you how they feel and because they know, know your family or be like, oh yeah, I know, I know. It's like, man. So how do you navigate through that, um, that minefield of, of being in a small town? Like, how do you get through that? Because that's mm. something that I I find interesting. Are you asking, everyone. How, are you asking how I did that, or yeah? Because I, I want to know yeah. how how you kind of because we never know that there's something really going on until it's mm. like put in our face that hey, this is something going on. Mm -hmm. um, even when we have the diagnosis, as some have as kids and some don't, some maybe they're teenagers, but when they when you really start coming online and mm. going all right this is different for me i know i have to figure out how to get through you know high school and mm. get out of here and on to college or go on mm. to do other things like what was the turning point in school like what made you go i, I need to I, what was that little seed besides the the call the longing for home because that's a that's a huge seed that you mm. planted earlier <laughs> I think my answer might disappoint you, but there wasn't one. Uh, doesn't really disappoint me. One. That no. See that, there but that really doesn't disappoint me at all, mm -hmm. um, because that means that you fought tooth and nail to get through it, and you just wanted to get through it. <laughs> that wasn't. Well, I'm not sure. I'm you know I'm not sure that actually happened. To be honest, I think like I was I was very miserable in my small mm -hmm. town. I was a mm -hmm. very very angry angry teenager, right? And that was for all sorts of different parts of my life. You know, I um, I came out as as gay when I was fifteen, mm. and in, like very early two thousands, and uh, and that was not fun. Um, the small town that I existed in, and I, I call it existing in, um, really was I just needed to find places to kind of hide within that space, right? So a lot of the a lot of my afternoons during the week was spent at the local library volunteering because nobody I knew went in there. It was only the older members of the community. Um, it got me out of the house. Um, I spent a lot of time online. I, I spent and, and that created a lot of unhealthy um, habits for me. I, I connected a lot with people outside of of that small area because there really wasn't anything. Where it was kind of how it worked was um, I, li I I lived in a village which was a ten minute drive from the main town where my high school was. So those few friends that I did have, they lived in the town, and mm. because my parents they um, they were so devoted to their business. Um, they, uh, they often the the phrase was, you know, you have to fit into our schedule, and uh -huh. I never fit into their schedule. Like if I wanted to go to town, um, 
and because I didn't learn how to drive when I was younger either. There was a lot of family stuff that, that really kind of came into that too, about control and keeping us like, you know, keeping us dependent and, and whatnot. I, I often never went to town. So a lot of my social life was online. And, um, and, and so I don't know if I did ever find a way to cope. I, I will say that like a lot of my interests, a lot of my hyperfixations, um, were were my kind of escape and uh, and so like folklore and and story and spirituality and paganism and all of that was really important to me um but I, I, yeah i didn't feel comfortable even and even really being in that town so i pined to to move to toronto and as soon as i could i did i went to toronto for college but this is this is also the issue with a growing up in a small town is that like you know, my because I hated school, I was often um, I would often stay home sick, right? So yeah. I had a, a big sick count. Um, yeah. It wasn't challenging to me. It wasn't really presented the way that I needed it to be. Uh, the content, and and I was very intelligent. I am very intelligent. I, I have no qualms in saying that I am very intelligent. Um, but often that intelligence would come with that very typical neurodivergent kind of you know making connections that were either hard to explain like you were saying or um i was i had already done it all in my head and gotten to the end result and uh, and people didn't understand how i made that jump they couldn't follow along with me and therefore i confused them also because i was gay i was different i was dealing with a lot of culture shock too yeah. Like the language, the type of language, the way I even thought about myself uh, was quite stunted by American standards because I was, I was, I grew up in a British household. So when it came to you know expressing emotion, talking about my my emotional feelings, like I remember a friend um, getting really annoyed with me because I would say things like when they said how are you, I said oh fine thanks, which is a very typical stock, you know, answer yeah. from Britain, right? Yep. You know. But uh, but over here it's seen as cold or and because I was I was also very deeply angry I was deeply angry I was dealing with culture shock I was dealing with trauma and uh, and so I I um, in order to f actually to be fair to answer your question in order to cope in that situation I had to make myself feel better than my surroundings. Mm. And so I often would look down on everything around me just as a way of coping. And that caused a lot of unhealthy stuff in me too. So I actually only really realized this over the last five years um, that how much anger, how much issue of control I, I, I was dealing with um, and, uh, and, and, and was able to let that go. But it took a lot of like mental restructuring, a lot of therapy to do that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I always um, I always admire when when the things come up uh, years down the road. Uh, for me, I think the last couple of years of therapy for me have been um, uh, invaluable. Like I can't put a price on like discovering a lot of the things that I held on to that the trauma that I was just stuffing down or just ignoring or just some of the things that I, I either went through as a child or even, you know, in college where I was like, wait a second, like all that time that was an issue that why, why do I try to make a joke of it? Why do I try to like hide it? Why do I try to like, it's like, Oh yeah. It's like once, right. once, you're, <laughs> once you can identify it and, <laughs> and get through it. And then all of a sudden you're just like, Oh, you know what? Yeah, that did happen. And it did mm -hmm. suck. 
Yeah. Holy shit, I feel better. <laughs> Acknowledgement. Yeah. The acceptance so piece. Exa absolutely. Because that shows then the landslide has happened, right? You don't need to hold on to that story, that narrative that you were holding on to for so long. Yeah. It's not yours, right? No. It is not. Yeah. No, that's. Oof. Um, so you are developing all these horrible habits and you're, you're doing all these, mm -hmm. these things to, to cope, which I've, I mean, mm -hmm. I don't know, probably almost every single one of my listeners and myself have been there. Um, mm -hmm. uh, but the switch you get to Toronto cause you uh, like me you need to get away from the little town. Yes. So did you instantly know like okay i know what i need to do <laughs> or did you kind of like stumble your way no. through yeah no the the trouble is i i always knew what i wanted to do and mm. i'm actually doing what i'm i i'm actually doing what i wanted to do when i was 18 now right this is the trouble mm. when i was um when i was 18 19 when i was just coming to the end of high school i had no idea what i wanted to do with myself I did actually know what I wanted to do, but forces in my life were were really trying to persuade me not to. My parents didn't see uh, what I wanted to do was to go and study history, to go and study religious studies, and like go into that. I really wanted to go to into academia. I really wanted to go into teaching because I loved I loved talking about this expert subject of mine that I loved. Right? Um, I was told by the school counselor. Your grades aren't good enough, they'll never accept you into university. Go to college first. Mm. And there was nothing at college for me. So what did I do? I looked at the list and I said, oh, well, maybe social work will be good. Right. Yeah. Maybe. <laughs> maybe. I, like, even now, you can tell in my voice, like, there was no yeah. connection with it no, whatsoever. I was no, like, well, was... I, you know. <laughs> Yeah. But but this also ties in, and I think this will be um, very relevant to a lot of listeners because of kind of how I was dealing with my life and sitting with my life and whatnot, um, and because I was gay and because I was a, a lot of the young women in my life would come to me with their problems and I would listen. And part of that was that whole, oh, suddenly I'm having attention, suddenly I have friends, when really they were just using me as an outlet because they made, they made their own assumptions because I was gay, that I was good at listening, that I was good at fashion advice, all this crap. <laughs> <laughs> like all this crap that you know immature people would think of right it's, it's, it's ridiculous the, you know it's all the stereotypes yeah <laughs> it's all the stereotypes right and so and so you know i got into my head oh i'm a good listener right um but i i was a good listener because i was in a family where i had to listen i didn't have voice mm. right and i didn't i hadn't had a voice since i was a, a child one of the recurring stories that my mom keeps trying to push on to me was oh well you were so you know you've overcome so much you were so you couldn't talk when you were a kid and you've done this and, and i'm like i'm fluent now like okay. i'm you know are yeah, you listening to like, me right now right it's, <laughs> but it's but now. it's that sense of control <laughs> yeah. well it's that sense of control it's that power thing right it was yeah. a dynamic with my mom. She needed to be needed, and this was one way she needed to be needed was that she could do everything for her kids and all blah 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 nonsense, yeah. right? I love my mom. Don't get me wrong. Please, listeners, don't forget. I don't love my mom, but I've seen through. Now I'm in this profession. I've seen through it all, right? Yeah. 
So I I choose social work and college level social work. So up here in in um, Canada we have two levels. So college for us is the same as like community college for you. Yeah. And then university would be that degree bachelor's, right? So that's mm-hmm. the dichotomy. And um, and so I I went to college, and did social work, really enjoyed it. It was a really good program. I met some incredible people through the program, um, but I knew I didn't want to go into it. So what did I do? You went I into pushed it. it off. I oh. went into it, right? Well, I went into it by actually applying for my bachelor's. So oh. I went and applied for my bachelor's in social work, upgraded, and then I, 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 I moved up to one of the other universities in Toronto. So it was, it was great. I didn't leave Toronto. I was just in another part of the city. And so overall, I was in there for six years. But as I came and approached uh, the end of university, I knew I didn't want to go into it. I knew it. I knew it. I knew it. Um, but counseling was something I was interested in, right? Mm-hmm. So I, uh, I had a bit of a mental breakdown, I'll be honest with you. A lot of my, my life fell apart in my last year, and I moved in with my parents again for five years. I basically just lived with them, did nothing, just worked for them. And it was hell. But I slowly got myself out, and I, I started to go back onto my own life. I took ownership of my life. And that, in 2015, is really when I started to go on this journey of where I'm at now. So I feel like I'm doing what I'm doing now, what I should have been doing 10, 12, 13 years ago. So it's kind of an interesting piece. Yeah. Well, I, I kind of find it funny because, though different lives, similar paths. Um, finding uh finding that that where you want to be now is and where you are now it is it's it is life altering uh, because that that switch that switch is like oh my life really has purpose now because it's not just like i think i should be doing this it's i know i should be doing this like this is no matter what and and going down like going down that path i know i i've i got to a point myself where i was like oh um i i don't know it's like i'm i'm supposed to do something with photography like i thought that was the big thing Mm -hmm. i was like i like photography i'll be a photographer and try going down that path but then that's through going down that path it branched off into okay well i like photography but i don't like all photography because i started with commercial photography and i was like this is Mm -hmm. this is not it this is not it at all actually and then i started working with animals and i was like this Mm -hmm. is more my speed and we, uh, my my wife and I, we got our pug Philomena, and I was like, "All right, let's go, let's do this." And I'm just gonna start taking pictures of her. We'll start an Instagram account, and I was like, oh, "This is interesting. This is actually going someplace." And her following got big, and I was like, "This is very strange. We're working with like big brands. Something still wasn't right." Right. It's like. A, like I'm almost there and it wasn't until when I was 39 and I was diagnosed with the uh, severe inattentive ADHD with generalized anxiety disorder. I was like, Mm -hmm. that's a lot. 
Um, and I was like, I don't know what all that is. So let's hyper-focus on that. And I just did a deep dive on it. And I said, there's something here. And I'm not sure what it is, but there's something here and there's, there's more to it than just like, this is what I, because unlike a, a lot of people are like, aren't you mad that for 39 years you, you didn't know and you wasted so much time doing things or like the wrong way because you weren't doing it your way. And I went, no, no, because now I know, like I worked around a lot of the norms to get to this point. And now I know that, hey, my brain's going to work differently so I can harness that to totally. go forward. And I said, well, mm-hmm. all right, there's kindling to the fire. Let's see yes. what happens here. <laughs> and I was like, okay. Yeah. And you fast forward, a, you know, two more years. You would think, oh, just two mm-hmm. years. What could happen in two years? Yeah. And I go from this thought of like, oh, I should be, you know, photography should be doing this thing mm-hmm. to... I need to be helping people and that's Mm. that was the switch because I helped somebody that I knew that also had ADHD and wasn't like a oh I'm gonna be your coach or I'm gonna do this for you or I'm it was just one-on-one chatting with them talking to them about like what they were doing how they were doing it and some of the things that I did to figure out how to get through and they took it and they, they took it and they ran with it. I was like, oh, I think I, f- I see what I need to do. <laughs> and I literally. Was that calling? Yeah, it was that was that was literally the calling. That was the, the light switch that went off. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this year I, I always I've been telling people the, the last year of my life has been one of those ones that were everything on paper. You look at it, it seems like it would mo- be the most horrible time on Earth. Um, losing uh, my mother-in-law passing away my father-in-law passing away my brother passing away like all these people all this loss all this chaos being in like having to travel to take care of an elderly uncle and being in another state for two months like all this chaos however through all the chaos where uh, somebody with ADHD (laughs) thrives um, I wrote a book on accident that's something that everyone asks me they're like oh you always wanted to be an like like (laughs) no no Mm -hmm. Uh, i've been an artist i've done like graphic design and art stuff all my life like never thought like creative writing yeah journaling yeah but writing a book on neurodivergent you know minds and how i got through and different tools to i was like did i ever think that that was a thing no, but having that interaction and then the subsequent brain dump like two months later of just like, I have a whole bunch of stuff in my head. Let me put it in a Google Doc. And then 25 pages later, I was like, all right, this is a wall of text. I need to fix this. <laughs> right. <laughs> but, but there's something here. So I, and I, that long story, just in my typical fashion, was to get to the author side of things when when um i know you just released this Mm -hmm. this current book um 
How, how many published pieces do you have? Because I didn't get to deep dive as much as I wanted to. And Definitely. I'm always open about that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this is my very first one. So awesome. this is the exciting piece. Yeah, this is yes. my very first one. Um, I've always been a writer. Writing was one of my ways of communicating back when I was younger. That and oftentimes, uh, totally, right? I would often go off into my own fantasy worlds. I would go off into my writing literature. I was reading all the time, right? Literature was a safe harbor for me. So writing, and because of the vocabulary I had, and that for many years I just kind of pushed it down, um, to the extent that I almost started to believe that my, I was losing my vocabulary. Um, it, it was one of those things where it, it, it felt comfortable. Um, I've always written, and over the past like, f seven years, I'd say, writing has become a big part of my life. I, when I went off and, and, and trained in psychotherapy, when I really took the reins of my life again, and I went off and I did the training course in psychotherapy, and then after that decided to go into in, become a professional therapist, writing suddenly became a big part of my life again. I was writing you know, all sorts of like courses. I was writing of course notes for when uh, for for my practice right so then the pandemic happened and um at that point i had had to go through a load of therapy for my psych therapy program so i was i was doing a lot of therapy work and a lot of internal work and there was uh, there were a load of landslides in my life i think when i finally allowed myself to admit to myself that i was different and that i was neurodivergent um, suddenly all of these other pieces came, right? I started questioning my gender identity. I started questioning whether or not, um, like, who was I? You know, who was I? Because so much of who I was was dependent on other people's uh, expectations of me, right? Mm, I yeah. often say this and people automatically know what I'm saying. I wasn't British until I came to Canada, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Right? Mm -hmm. And so much of our identities are based on what other people are perceiving of us. But when I finally let go of that, and I let go of the strictures of, you know, identifying myself based on what other people are expecting of me, that allowed a lot of freedom to define myself. And that was a real sense of power that I had in my life suddenly. And then the pandemic happened, and oh, I lost all my clients, and I suddenly had nothing to do. <laughs> so I um, I took a small part-time job at a local bookstore. I just moved into my own place after living with roommates for many years. So suddenly I had my own space, and then the pandemic happened. The government of Ontario was giving us a lot of money at that time. I know in the States um, you didn't get as much support, but uh, yeah. up here in Canada we did. So I had a lot of time. And I had developed this course around ancestors, um, one of many courses. I have other parts of, 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 of my work that I had developed. But ancestor work in particular was something big that I had been working on for many years in my therapy, in my spiritual practice, in my personal life. And, uh, and so I, 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 I originally sat down and made loads of notes. And I think I had like 96 pages of notes, just rough wow. notes, things to, because I, I, I was teaching, I developed an eight-week class um, around it. I, I gained a load of, uh, of, of people to come in and take the class with me. And, uh, and so in 2020, I, I delivered the class for the first time online, virtually, because people really needed that. Mm -hmm. And then after I, I had developed the course, I was like, you know what? I think this would make a good book because I, I always want, I'd always wanted to be published. And I, I was surrounded by a couple of people who were published already. So a friend of mine, my supervisor at the time, um, she, I sat down with her and I said, you know, I'm, I think this would make a good book. And, and, she, and she basically gave me uh, the, the kind of 
basics of, of how to approach a publisher, what you do, what are the stages, what are the steps, that kind of thing. So um, she gave me her uh, email address to her, her editor, and uh, I contacted, sent a, a submission in, and um, or I, I sent a query letter in eventually. I wrote the book first, so I wrote 110,000 words over the span of eight, eight months. Wow. Um, it, it was pretty impressive. Um, yeah. it, it was pretty impressive. <laughs> yeah. um, but it was really based on expanding what I had already done the year before. So overall, like, if if I were to really say, like, sitting down pen to paper, it's actually been closer probably to close to four years. Like, hmm. September 2019 is when I started to first write the notes for all of us. Um so I'm a little tired of talking about ancestor work, to be honest. <laughs> it's been such a big part of my life. But it, but, but it, it was something that I proved that I could do. And I knew yeah. that I could do it. It was all of those narratives that I had been living with saying that I couldn't, right? Mm-hmm. And, and the biggest piece you talked about when you were telling me your story, you talked about kind of that moment of realizing how you fought and really hacking your brain, right? And I had experienced the same thing. Over the, over the span of me working in my psychotherapy um, program, I, I, I really developed an understanding of how I learn, which is auditory. If you tell me a story, if you tell me something, this is why I'm so good in my therapy work, I tend to remember it because of how I'm mind mapping behind the scenes. So it's one of those in learning how to use how I naturally think anyways, not as a disability, but as an alternative ability. Um, I was able to then figure out, okay, these are my strengths. So I'm actually very good with memory. I'm very good with short-term memory and very good with um, transitioning to long-term memory, depending on how I'm, I'm gaining the information. So in my therapy work, I was able to really monopolize on that. And when I'm in, in context, if we were sitting in a therapy session together and you were my client, when you go out the door, chances are I'm not going to remember what we talked about. But when you're back in this space again, it all comes back. So it's really, really powerful way of, of working and, and, and in understanding that, in understanding how the uh, dyspraxia affects how I think, um, I was able to really, not, like, really jump on that. Wow. And then yeah. when it came to actually writing the book, that was really, really easy for me because I tend to like to break things down. I tend to like to mind map. Mind mapping is one of my favorite tools to organize information. And so in order, like coming up with a, a, a well, coming up with this, yeah. Coming up with all of this um, was easy <laughs> because I was well because I was able to break it into different sections and then just write each section as I went along and because I was using memory techniques I was able to then make linkages of okay this this section I've just written here I can jump back to chapter two and write that section that links to it and mm. so I slowly built it all together and then my editor um, in the editing process was able to pick out well well you've already talked about this here well you haven't talked about this here. And it was because I worked on the section before I wrote that section. <laughs> so it was good. So, well, yeah. you know, uh, I, that that process, because uh, when you're talking about it, my, my brain just started going, hey, yeah, um, mm-hmm. that doesn't work for me. <laughs> I see. And that's good. That's good. Yeah. That's okay. Right. Yeah. And I, th- I think mm-hmm. that's a huge thing, too, is, is yeah. and uh, even when I wrote my book on, on the tools, I said, these aren't going to work for everyone. But they were, at least one of them will work for you. It's not like this is the thing. It's not 
it's like, oh, there's 20 tools. All of them are going to change your life. It's not the way it works. These are the ones that changed my life. That That's why, like, um, when somebody asked me, like, well, if you didn't want to write a book, why did you? And I went, um, well, I, I wrote the book because I knew I had to. <laughs> and the answer, they didn't like that answer because I was like, no, was like, no because <laughs> when I felt like the need like oh, there was um excitement behind it mm-hmm. and i could write a lot on that excitement because it was something that i was so in not just like in tune and in touch with but like this is it's me like i'm writing about me but mm-hmm. i found out finally after 42 years of life that there's that i'm not alone it's not just me. There's a lot that's, of people out there that have issues. And, and I was like, that's why I wrote the book. And once I got it, because for me, I, the writing session, not nearly as many words as I think final edit had on just under 30,000. But I wasn't looking to make a, a big, huge book, just something mm-hmm. that I can get people on the right track and have them approach things differently you know either mentally physically or socially Mm -hmm. and um when i finished writing uh, from the initial brain dump in january of this year (laughs) to um i ended up self-publishing through amazon because i was like i need to do it this way but i went through an editor who was also which was the talk about the perfect editor my editor was autistic with a a husband that had adhd (laughs) so she she ocd and on the autism spectrum and like loved just the 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 outline i gave her and then when i gave her my my first draft she was just like oh my god this is why more people aren't writing about this stuff i'm like okay what do you what do you want me to i'm writing it i mean <laughs> it's, it's here <laughs> it's, it's it's coming i just need you to finish your draft and then i can i can go with your notes but i um when i got back my first set of notes i was always kind of just like i was excited but then i was like i felt uh like um overwhelming like a uh, warmth because there was notes mm-hmm. where it'd be like oh you know connecting ideas and maybe expound about uh, on this and maybe don't use this so much and then all of a sudden goes there was one note that was just like whole it said holy shit i never thought about doing this before and i was like that's not really a note that i was expecting (laughs) and the next note was like no seriously this this right here plus this one like these are going to be new daily things in our routine because it's going to help us organize our day better and i was like Mm -hmm. I said, I, I don't even have to release the book. I already helped somebody. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But yeah, there, there is a magic to releasing a book that I didn't, mm-hmm. I didn't feel it until I had the cop, like my actual copy mm-hmm. in my hand. I, I know. Like, yeah. what did you feel when you, when you had your physical copy? Like, <sighs> I, it, yeah, it was it was surreal. It was very surreal at that point. Uh, it had been when did I get my? I got my arc, my e galley, my galley first, um, and 
Although it was still uncorrected, I, I was still editing it at that point. It was like final edits for me to, get, to get it, give in. It was still that whole, wow, two years of my life in this. It really does feel like a child in many ways. It really does feel like a child. Um, it's a weird, it's a weird sensation though, because like the way that my publisher stages it, there's, there's like several way, like there's several stagings. Um, so I, I received my galley first, um, which is a rough, unedited. Like this is just giving you an idea, and I think I must have carried that thing around for like two weeks, showing people. Right, <laughs> it was one of those things. Um, you know, I casually just put it out on the table as if I was reading it, and somebody would be like, "Oh, is this your book? Yes, it is my book." You know. Um, <laughs> When I, I got the final, I, I got two copies that were my final version. These were the author um, versions. Um, I uh, it, it was it was still exciting because that was what the final book was going to look like. That's what this is. That's yeah. what this is with the back cover and all of that and my little picture and all of that, right? Um, and it was exciting. And then a week later, a, another box of them showed up. They, they were my complimentary copies. And I wasn't as excited, like... <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, it was it, it's a weird thing, and then the uh, because I I'd been really heavily promoting it at that point, I'd done about ten podcast interviews around the subject, mm. um, and uh, and I was already starting to get a little annoyed with like I don't want to talk about this anymore. <laughs> and, you know, it's like one of those things. But when you when you talk about a subject so much, you really become dissociated from it in many ways. Yeah. Um, now that it's out, it came out. Uh, well, when we're recording now, it came out two weeks before this recording mm. um so two weeks ago i was very excited i, I did an online um a virtual book launch i have a physical book launch at the uh at the bookstore i was working at when i was writing it which is nice oh, wow. that's um, awesome so that it's exciting yeah but yeah. it's um yeah the editing process was kind of a, a unique thing because going into it i i i I did myself a real service by starting my podcast. I actually started my podcast while I was writing this mm -hmm. and did the first season. And what I did was I connected with other authors who I, you know, who I was, who were accessible to me. Um, and, uh, and I just, you know, ended up chatting them up afterwards and just gaining a sense, right, of kind of their process and all of that best thing I could have done. It really allowed me to understand what the process was like. It really helped me to kind of put things into perspective. When I got my notes, um, and so my public, my, my editor um, gave me 14 pages and when I checked in with some of the other people I knew, like a lot of people just like get 18 or 17 or, t or 20 pages, right? So I already felt good about that. Um, I was hesitant though because I didn't know how I'd feel. Mm -hmm. And when I actually got into the notes it was it was fascinating to see how I connected with those notes and, and I could see where they're coming from. And even now I've had a couple of bad reviews and I can, I can maybe my therapy kind of mindset comes into it too, but I, I, I can detach from those bad reviews and I yeah. can be like, okay, well, I can see why you would say that based on perhaps your pre-expectations of what this thing was going to give you, right? Totally understand. I don't need to take responsibility of that. So the excitement is there but I'm also like I'm working on my next project now so it's like okay go off to college you're good you're done get out of my basement you know we have another <laughs> child we need to rear you know <laughs> oh my I I love that analogy because that's that's kind of like how I, I've been feeling like I, I'm I'm pushing my book hard with with people and, I, and I'm finally getting on podcasts and I recorded like four or five right now but they're not coming out till October so I'm like uh, oh okay well 
I'll wait to do a huge push <laughs> then, I guess. But, but <laughs> I I couldn't help but laugh because like everyone's like, well, you wrote the book, you're done now. I'm like, no, all the book did was create. Like I now have an outline to go deeper. So there's three more books in the series of yep. tools and fantastic. And then I have my other book that has really come to fruition in the last uh, four or five months is my personal journey of my diagnosis being medicated and then finding another way through spirituality and meditation oh, and eventually plant medicine to become unmedicated. Mm. And it was that obviously that one's going to be less more of a like, Hey, these are fun mm. tools that you can use more of really bearing the soul and just being vulnerable and completely open because mm. that's what a lot of people don't normally when people meet me there, there's always an intimidation thing with me because mm. I am a very tall very mm. i'm like uh, six foot five you know like mm. 280 pounds i'm a big like mm. i look like an american football player or a rugby <laughs> player like i mean i'm just huge so like people are intimidated and that's always like the first question a lot of people here in the south will ask me like oh who'd you play for because they think i went to college and, like for um, <laughs> for football and I'm like no i was an art major um, I went to school for art, uh, for graphic design, and uh, I'm a photographer, and I play with puppies, and like that's my <laughs> life, and and uh, and I'm like now in the last like couple of years, like now it's like I'm totally like fine and, and open. I'm an open book for everyone. Everyone can talk to me. I'm not afraid to cry. I'm like there's a lot of stuff where mm -hmm. I would just like hide emotion or stuff it down and now it's not like that anymore so right. i i tell people like it's it's um writing the one book gave on accident uh gave birth to a, a whole lineage of books that are going to be coming out <laughs> that's very 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 common once you've gone through this process and you know what to expect Right. I found yeah. that with myself, like for years I wanted to write a book and, and working on this, this, this process took longer because my publisher didn't get back to me for eight months. Knowing oh, wow. that kind of what the schedule, well, it was a timing thing. I, I, I and, uh, and, and also the pandemic thing too. Oh, they yeah. were receiving a lot of manuscripts that year because of, of the pandemic. And it's now like, you know, we're seeing kind of a resurgence in this particular, um, spiritual, spirituality book particularly a big big wave of them are coming out now because these are all the ones that started were written in the pandemic so it's one of those kind of you know enjoy what we have now because the next wave isn't going to be as big but mm -hmm. it's um it's one of those um like knowing what to expect now like i already have a trilogy set out in mind right what's fascinating though and this is what i think was very affirming when i started to connect in with the other authors in this particular niche that I'm writing in, um, most of them are like me. Most of them are, 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 are queer, most of them are gay, most of them are, you know, practicing very similar things. Many of them, it's funny, many of the bigger people, the bigger names, also went through speech therapy or are neurodivergent in some way, yeah. right? 
And so yeah. I, I, I think that, that that is a very interesting part of writing too, because there needs to be hyperfixation, there needs to be a certain focus, there needs to be a different skill set that neurotypical people don't necessarily have. Um, you know, to be able to have the patience to sit down and just go, right, and write 5,000 words. Yeah. It, it takes a certain mindset, right? Yeah. You know? That's, that's, um, I, I always tell people to, because they ask me, well, how did you do it? And they're like, oh, well, you know, there's that thing where people say you should, you know, write like a, a thousand words a day or whatever. And <laughs> that's good. That's great when it works. Mm-hmm. Um, and yes. I would try and make it habitual and do it. But there were like stretches of like three, four days. But here's the thing is when you get hyper fixated and you start working on it and you're like, all right, I'm just going to sit down and start typing. And then seven hours will just bleed by. And you're like, well, I just put down, you know, 12,000 words. <laughs> Be like, I, I, I don't know. I guess I'm good for the next 12 days. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, and that comes down to kind of like, again, figuring out how you work, right? Because everybody has different... I, I was having a conversation um, with uh, somebody else. I, I'm using a, a collective workspace up here, uh, a beautiful workspace. Really, really cool because when you're in like a therapy office and it's all therapists all the time, you, you don't tend to have you don't tend to have other conversations other than therapy, right? When you're in a mixed space like where I am now, you have some really fascinating conversations. And we were talking about, I was talking with um, somebody who's uh, an entrepreneur and we, and, and, and particularly on how, like how, how we both best work, like what, what is our routine? And he was saying how for him, like, you know, he really, he really admires people who can get up at 6am and work all the way through in the morning and have like that set because, you know, he finds he just gets into it by, like, 2 o'clock in the afternoon. Um, mm. And and then, you know, he might be, you know, having, because he's got kids, he has to stop at 5 or 6, and then he, he finds he only has productivity in four hours of a day, right? We were talking how different writers, how different people operate. Ursula K. Le Guin, who I absolutely adore, one of my absolute favorite writers, um, her routine and her schedule was she would get up at 7 a.m., go to her desk and write until about 11 o'clock. And then that was it. That was all she did. And then the rest of the afternoon after lunch, she just gardened, she went and did, or she read, or she did research, or whatever it was, but she didn't write. And she found that those hours in the morning when it was quiet, when she was in the headspace, Mm -hmm. um, it it worked for her. Well, as other people, like another uh, well-known author in the niche that I write in, um, he could be up at 2 a.m. writing until 5 a.m., and those are his peak hours. And then he'll, you know, have an early breakfast or something like that, and then go and have a lie down and get up at 11, and, you know, that's it right it it depends on on uh, you have to learn about yourself instead of yeah. this whole nine to five nonsense you know yeah and also be open to that changing too as we grow older yeah i, I know when i was a uh, when i was younger it I, my hours were just strange anyway i was always a night <laughs> owl i mean to see me up at two thirty, three o'clock in the morning was a normal thing like uh, yeah have you gone to bed yet? I'm like, no, no, I'm I'm doing something, <laughs> no matter what it was, even if it was just yeah. playing games. But now, like, I, I know my peak times, and it, and it depends on like the type of day. If it is a like for me, I I um I microdose. So if I'm microdosing psilocybin, I know there's a window of the day where 
productivity is going to be much higher than it normally would. So for, so if I start and my day nowadays, I'll start my day at five o'clock in the morning and mm. I'll get, get up. I have, you know, I do uh, an exercise from the artist way where you kind of just, um, I love that book. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's so good. So <laughs> I do my pages. So that's three pages of just, you know, stream of consciousness onto it. Mm-hmm. Negative, positive, doesn't matter. Just get it all out. Once it's all out and done, I then go meditate. It's a daily practice of mine. I need that. It's mm. it's so good just for the rest of the day. And then from there, I, depending on if I feel like pulling an oracle card, I do that because that's a thing I like doing. Then I'll go take care of the pugs, and I know like now the day is really starting. I take care of the pugs, get everything ready, have breakfast with the wife. And I know as soon as we get all done, I'm going to be in front of my computer in the office or I'm going to take my laptop and go someplace and, and work on that thing for the day. And I know that that thing is going to get done because right. I already set that intention for the day. Right, right. Which used, used to never be like that. It used to just be like, ha, God, what am I doing? <laughs> I, I, I feel you in truth like part of the reason why my book uh, my why my process took so long was I didn't have a routine with it I didn't decide like okay this is again the hours I'm going to do it and then after that I'm just going to force myself away I was sitting down and I was doing it all hours for time right or trying to with many breaks in between right because yeah. it's a drudge i mean it's a drudge to get through writing especially on on you know subject matters that might not entice you but they're important to write about right um but uh but that like I, with age and i think with with experience we get to that place of understanding what works best for us and i mean i'll be honest fungal plant medicine helped me out too um <laughs> It was uh, it was one of those things where when I was writing this, I had a big sense of anxiety and control, and it's amazing what some of those plant helpers can do in re- reducing that anxiety and that lack of control. Right? It is uh, amazing. I, I was actually on a podcast recently. It, I went on this podcast because we got on the topic of of ADHD, and she's like, "Oh, you microdose," and it didn't click until. Mm-hmm. She said it again out loud. The name of the podcast is called Life Changing Trips. And I was just like, oh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> right. I thought it was a travel podcast. She's like, oh, traveling, kind of journeying, maybe. I'm like, oh, yeah, my brain just didn't catch on to that real quick. And now I, now, yes. now I get it because I was like, wow, wow we're right. talking about like a whole bunch of different types of plant medicines and. I was like, are we going to talk about going anywhere? I'm like, no. <laughs> yeah, and psychonauts of the German uh, uh, space agency, right? <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, the, they are a great helper for, for and it's still like here, here in the States, it makes no sense at all that it's illegal and on any front. The fact that the Psychedelic Act in, what, 72, yeah. 73, just... There's like, oh yeah, that, that's basically cocaine and heroin, and you're like, 
No, no, it's not. Yeah, it's there's a differences, right? Absolutely. <laughs> they, I, I mean, it is changing from a psychotherapeutic point of view here. Um, so I know that there are ketamine trials that are starting. Mm-hmm. Psilocybin trials are starting in certain places, like I know Colorado and I think Portland, Oregon has now started them. Seattle. Yeah. Um, in Canada, we've got some of the provinces on board. Actually, a colleague of mine is training to be able to assist uh, a trip, to, to be a trip sitter um, as, as a therapist. Um, and uh, and not psilocybin yet, but definitely ketamine. The trails yeah. have, have started. So, so hopefully very soon that's going to go. Um, I think yeah. it'll, be, like, it'll be strange going to the UK because over there the law is very much very similar to the United States, um, and and I think that there's a lot of opportunities for assistance, a lot of opportunities for changing if it's an unsafe way, of course, right? Yeah, um, I think yeah, if it's an unsafe way, I know for myself certain experiences that may or may not have happened um, certainly helped me but again it was that it was allowing me to let go of those narratives that I had existed with for such a long time and sometimes it takes a plant ally to come in and be like to point out and restructure the brain a bit so that we see things in a different way yeah I I think that was the big the big one for me was in uh, in June I was in Sedona Arizona and that's a weird place for psychedelics. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it's uh, definitely, a, it was a, if there was ever a place I've been on earth that I felt immediately was mm-hmm. that place. Well before any sort of ceremony, where well before anything. It's just, mm-hmm. I was like, whoa, okay, there's something going on here. And I don't know what yet. I know there's a lot of history here, so I'm... Mm-hmm. I'm really I, I I'm feeling it already. And <laughs> I've heard and, that before. Like friends of mine who go down there all the time, and uh, they say there's something in the there's something in the land, right? Yeah, yeah, there is. Yeah. I, and the, we had a a local shaman actually talk to us about like there's like there's reason why this is like the Red Rock area is mm-hmm. how the there's like more iron in in the in the rock so it oxidizes and it makes everything this red mm-hmm. color she, but also the frequency of the earth there is very different than even mm-hmm. just like 20 miles away in the verde valley which is like mm-hmm. regular desert and then you're like oh it's like just brown and and yellow and a little pops of green and then you get into sedona and it's just like red and green and you're like what's mm-hmm. going on here and it's like the difference between Four hertz and like 140 hertz, yeah. and you're just like, it's very strange. <laughs> well, I'm trying to think if um, it's it's hematite in the in the ground that causes that, isn't it? Yeah, I think. Yeah, yeah. there's yeah. there's um, the deposits that are there are incredible. That's why everyone's like, well, the, you'll go every five feet, and there's another like, you know. Uh, stone shop and, <laughs> and there's crystals and everything you're like well yeah. i mean even this my mala beads are mm. from there and i use them as people are just like oh it's like a mala so you do your mala meditation mm. i was like yeah i do that but it's also a reminder of like, every time i have it on or touch it i'm like this is a reminder of sedona like just to reconnect mm. with that memory yeah. um and the, the what i was getting to was the actual um plant medicine journey i had there was so profound 
and so uh, life-altering that on the other side of it, <laughs> I saw a lot of the errors of my way before and like things that I wouldn't follow mm -hmm. through on things I wouldn't be able to like things I would start and like half ass through or not get there and then I, I started connecting everything and going yeah I know why I didn't do it because I, I had no interest in doing it I was oh. doing it because somebody else told me like you have to right. do this to, to make money so create a a create things for Etsy that are photography based. You have all this stuff. And then like, just play that over and over in your head until you believe it. And I'm like, but I don't believe it. Cause I don't want this. This isn't what right. I want. So the, the fact of coming on the other side of Sedona, just refocus it. Cause Sedona is where I got my final edit too of my book, which made me laugh. Cause I was like, this is, perfect actually um <laughs> i went over it and i was like this is just making me happy while i'm here and then i went being of service is huge to me like the, writing the book is one thing but now like to start branching out and like talking to more people in person and helping them out that's that's huge and like figuring out ways to get around that and i was like okay uh photography is still huge for me and i, I came to the realization that i don't have to do the portrait work and do all this stuff. Mm. I, I could just be a photographer and do what I love and still like have, you know, pets are still going to be a thing. Like that's so always going to be course. a thing, <laughs> but I have a lot of fine art photography. I like doing that. I can still do that. It's fine. I can do that. I don't have to make that a business. If somebody wants to buy a print, they can buy a print. And I was like, okay. Mm -hmm. And I started listening. I was just like, and then I, I love connecting with people and love talking to people. And I was mm -hmm. just like, man, what do I do? I mean, it's, it's hard getting around here in the South and I don't really like it in Georgia. And, it's, and I was like, and I, I was like, oh yeah, the podcast, that's how I connect mm -hmm. with people. That's, I get to connect with people. <laughs> and I was like, if I just keep doing those three things with the love and intention that I have for them. Like it's like of connecting, of educating, of teaching, of being support mm -hmm. of all this stuff. All that's going to come is nothing but positive from it. And it has like, that's how, yeah. that's how it works. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. It's true. And what's happening there by the sounds of it is that you're realigning your expectations you're reevaluating what your goals are and what your like what your expectations of those goals are, right? And yeah. and coming to that place of, I I like to use this a lot with with clients. It's not a, a case of being happy or sad. The goal is contentment. Yeah, yeah, it really that's, is. That really, that's that's the perfect word because the. It, you know, people, especially in, in the woo-woo metaphysical spaces that I'm always in. I love woo-woo metaphysical spaces. <laughs> yeah, it's, I always laugh because if, if I don't say that, people don't understand it. But if I just say metaphysical <laughs> by itself, there's like, ooh, that sounds like you're into some. But like, no, it's, it's, it's simpler <laughs> on surface when you look at it. But it's the spaces that I'm in, it's, it's that whole idea of filling your cup. And when you fill your cup, it's so much easier to to do everything else. It's like, oh, my cup's full. Like I, I get my cup filled by doing those three things. I don't yes. have to seek out other things. I don't have to 
dopamine chase like I normally yeah. would with ADHD. Like I, these things yeah. give me dopamine, and the fact that it's not a um, what happens a lot with people with ADHD is like they hyperfixate on something, and mm-hmm. here's my new thing, and then a week later it's gone. They're like, something I don't care else. anymore. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I've been a photographer for eight years. I know that that's a part of it. That that's a that's a cup filler. Uh, this podcast has been. I mean, and this, the new name, but I mean, we going on 40 episodes over the last two years. There was a small hiatus due to uh, a hosting issue before I got on Spotify. <laughs> I still, I still get mad at my old host, Dream Host, about that one because I, they lost all my episodes, which was really cool of them. Because <laughs> uh, I thought like the whole idea was like, oh, I'll just self-host everything because I, I know how to do that, and then. Mm-hmm they lost everything. And I was like, how did you lose my website and all my podcast episodes? They're like, <laughs> something happened to the backup and um, it's all gone right now. I'm like, cool. Yeah. That's really cool of you guys. Oh, that's, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, but, uh, backing up is a good thing, right? Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Luckily I still had most of the raw audio. So, oh, <laughs> most of it. Um, some of it, you know, it's okay. It's okay to trim down some of them, but <laughs> I, uh, I, uh, I kept going through these things and I was like, I'm finding these things that are filling my cup and I'm not deviating from them. Mm. Like that, that's, that's the big thing is, is I, I, fi- I found my things and it doesn't matter if it, if I was 41, 42, or if I was 80 or if I was 10, the fact is, is I found them. <laughs> this is big. This is big. Yeah, this is big. This is the thing I, I, I don't think people fully really understand. It's that, again, it's those narratives that we get locked in, right? It's that narrative that if you give up on something, there's a lot of shame even in how that's phrased, you giving up on it, right? As opposed to you expressing yourself, you exploring, you experiencing, right? There's no issue with you experiencing something new just because in that moment it grabs your attention, Right? That in itself is still an expression of who you are deep down, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. People get caught into this thing of, um, are you being or are you doing, right? Yeah. You oh, know? yeah. It's like Ramdas says, be here now. And I think that that, I think that that is often with ADHD, particularly something that people often get confused about who don't have ADHD. It's this idea that even with the symptom of the moving all around, whatever it's coming across as in that moment, because it can be different for people, different people, but there's still underneath that, still the underlying, all the the basics, right? And, and, And what can seem like flightiness or inattention or whatever it is. Um, underneath that symptom, there is actually attention. There is actually something else going on, and there there is that essential quality that's being expressed. Yeah, and, mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, you know, shame is shame is a was a big part of of me mm-hmm. not being me. Like mm-hmm. that was mm-hmm. b- between either the shame I felt from being a kid and living that that story of being stupid or or even just growing up and like um like the shame of 
there was a time when I was like homeless and like all these things I had shame on and it's things I didn't even want to admit I had shame about and coming coming face to face with all that like I said the Sedona journey was a um was a was a big one <laughs> because I came face to face with a lot of the stuff that I uh, thought I was working through and I was working through in therapy. I, I worked through a lot of it and worked through a lot of it with uh, a, a lot of um, work with a shaman that I did a lot of uh, regression with and went through a lot of things that I did in my life. And But really to have the, the dark night of the soul that I had in, in Sedona and to really experience ego death and feel that feeling of like yeah like but why are you holding on to any of that so why is why why even bother like well, don't yeah. don't hold on to it like yes it sucked yes you went through it but here you are <laughs> now we're we're on to better <laughs> better mm-hmm. things so yeah. it's um yes it, it people get really really wrapped up in shame shame is a, a big one that's a that's a hard one for a lot of people but um shame is is by far one of the uh one of the only common denominators with all of my clients and and myself and everybody i've known right yeah and it, partly that's because of the culture that we exist in right shame is a big part of western culture um it's a way of control it's a way of making sure that we're safe because oftentimes who's shaming us when we're young? Our, our, our family, then yeah. it's our friends, then it's ourselves. Yep. You know, a lot of work that I do with, um, with, with my clients is to figure out, okay, well, what are the shaming messages that you're receiving that you're giving yourself, right? And then think about, okay, what purpose are those shaming messages? giving you and vast majority of the time those shaming messages are actually protecting us from all of those other pieces which is the fear of being isolated fear of being rejected fear of all of these things right and and so those shaming messages are are acting as a way of trying to protect us it's just doing it in a very healthy way yeah you know yeah Yeah, that's that's perfectly said too because it it is it is a a, a, it's a protection mechanism that Mm -hmm. we put up and it's it's not the best one (laughs) that's for sure (laughs) it's it's the easiest one that's the that i think that's the hardest part is that it is probably the easiest one to to get into because it's very prevalent um and i I, well it's I would well, I would go so far as to say it's ingrained. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's ingrained, you know. When we when we uh, from the very moment of our birth, right? We're surrounded by cultural messages. We we evolve and we socialize. This is partly why neurodiversity is such a um uh such a, a difficult topic for a lot of people because there is the cultural message of what is considered typical and what isn't. Right, yeah. culture culture doesn't really exist on a, a continuum. Um, at least that's the narrative that we're given. And so, on certain things, if you fall outside of the bounds of normal, oftentimes society is fearful of you because you 
represent a challenge to that social narrative, right? And so what does society do? It makes those who are not normal either disappear or subservient or whatever it is, right? Made to feel not welcome. And yeah. so shame is that, that that message of you know don't feel like you don't don't be don't be different don't be abnormal you know don't go against the social rules because what will happen you'll be ostracized you'll be laughed at you'll be all of this right you yeah. know a very common British one that I grew up with is what does what would the neighbours think well don't dye your hair green what would the neighbours think yeah. you know <laughs> wow yeah that that is um, man that's a that's a deep one because it, mm-hmm. it is it is ingrained in us and mm-hmm. i think in that's why i going through and you know being able to release trauma and, and do trauma mm-hmm. work that like 2023 has had its up and down ups and downs for me but i have to say that the one message that i want to i always tell this to everyone that i meet i'm just like listen it's one you're definitely not alone in all this but when you have shame that either you brought on yourself or you're you have ingrained in you it just shows you that even if you come from a family that loves you and supports you they can still hurt you (laughs) very much so very much so and that actually ties in wonderfully with um the kind of the work of my book right one of the things that I think a lot of people, again, get into this idea of is that, you know, you have to follow with the family narrative. Well, the family narrative is in itself almost like a sentient thing. It's changing depending upon each generation. It's adapting so that it continues to survive, so that the, the status quo of the family continues to survive. I think this is why so many of us who are different often leave and find our own families, our chosen families, Yeah. right? Um, but if we, in doing ancestor work, and this is where the spirituality piece comes in, we're actually, when it comes to ancestor and ancestral story, family story, what we're dealing with is something that is divorced from the people who started it in the first place, because they're dead, right? Yeah. One of the most powerful um, experiences I had um, was I, I I sat down and had a conversation with my grandfather in a deaf cafe. Uh, not a deaf cafe, a, a dumb supper. So a dumb, a dumb supper, a silent cafe, is a, a kind of a seance-like um, ritual where you invite um, the, the dead into a space, into a, a cafe-like space, to take a seat in front of you so that you can commune with them over a slice of cake or over a cup of coffee or whatever it is, something that's going to bring you into that space through meditation. And I, 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 I had a conversation with my grandfather about some of the ways that I heard that he had um, treated my dad with. And the, the, the form of my grandfather, whether it was just in my head or if it was actually him, um, apologized mm. and said, you know, if I knew what I know now, back then, I wouldn't have treated him that way. Right? Yeah. And this, I think, is the power of the ancestral story and, and ancestor work, is that it divorces the individuals from the story that we've been handed down about them. In the same way that, you know, in, in families, those of us who are different often become the black sheep of families. And then that we have all sorts of stories told about us that are not bearing true to reality. But yeah. those are the stories that are going to last in the family about us. 
And so then in doing that, connecting in and relating, it's about relationship. Um, we, 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 we learn to decouple and see through those stories as just narratives, just opinions that have been passed down. If we can do that with the dead, we can do that with ourselves. We're not accepting of those stories anymore of, you know, don't be this way because Uncle Tom was like that and we don't want you to be like Uncle Tom or, oh, look at what Aunt, Aunt Gertrude did, you know, look at what she didn't do with her life. You don't want to become like a failure like her. Mm. Meanwhile, Aunt Gertrude went on and lived a very happy life all by herself, right? All yeah. of these things. I don't have an Aunt Gertrude, but you know what yeah. I mean, right? I don't know many people that have an Aunt Gertrude. <laughs> not anymore, days. not anymore, no. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that's the type of work that I talk about in my book, but that can be applied to all aspects of our own lives, right? Yeah. In the same way that neurodiversity, if I had accepted what my teachers in Canada had said when I was what, 11, 10, 9, but I was, I was behind, I wasn't going to catch up, that I, I, I was delayed, all of these things. If I had accepted that back then, I don't know where I would be right now. I yeah. certainly wouldn't be finishing university. I wouldn't be a professional therapist. I wouldn't be a, a, a published author, right? Yeah. It's, yeah. It's, it, it, it totally changes the trajectory of your mm -hmm. life. And, totally does. And, uh, I mean, unfortunately, I sometimes, in your case, this, it, it was great mm -hmm. that you, you didn't give in to the, that narrative. Because mm -hmm. if you did, because obviously everything would be different and then for some you know, it's it got them to where they are i i just i think for me i just hope it it there's always a, a point of of realization or actualization of of like everything that did happen like that's why people ask me that question be like well you found out at 39 would would you like aren't you mad like wouldn't you go back I was like I wouldn't go back and change a damn thing mm. because the struggles I had the the fighting getting through the going to college which was like a big thing like it was a mm -hmm. big expectation that everyone had of me because I was so intelligent but I didn't apply myself <laughs> I didn't try hard enough you know things that where I was just sitting there and I was just struggling. It wasn't yes. like a, for lack of trying. It was just a struggle. Um, but to go through my entire life and to go through me being homeless, the strange impulsive decisions, the turning left instead of right, like all yes. those things, I, I would do it all again if it meant that I got back to where I am now. Because this is the thing. This mm -hmm. is... Now that I understand, and now that I've been able to let go of all of that, it's like, yeah, I needed to go through that. Yeah. I chose to go through that at some point. If, if you guys believe before, you know, when you're just a little soul float, floating around in the higher <laughs> realms, it's just like, this is the one, this is the path that I want to choose the hard difficulty. Let's go with this one. And then, you know, you just get released into it. And I chose to do this. So here I am, um, and I'm on the other side of the, the scary part, and now I get to live my life now. And I, I think that's the best part. The best way, yes. Yeah. Well, 
So, not to turn this into a therapy session because you're not my client, obviously. But <laughs> when I listen to that, right, what I hear there is again that appeal to empowerment. You know, a lot of people say that when they receive a diagnosis, even just have a label to say, yes, this is what I've been experiencing, it's actually a validation piece. Mm. You know, this isn't all in my head. This is something that I've actually been dealing with. I'm now validated because I have a word I can describe to people with, right? Yeah. Yeah. But I, that's I, still, it's that's still. still, it's still an appeal to authority in the same way that the narrative of, and of a belief of, you know, I chose to go through this and so I'm happy that I, I had to do this. I hear the intention with that. And for me, you know, I feel like, I, I, I do feel the same way. I feel that, you know, I wouldn't be who I am now if I hadn't gone through all the things I, I, I had gone through. But I went through all of those things not because I chose to, or even if we think of it on a spiritual level, I, I, I used to believe that way, but I, 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 I see how that can easily become a narrative of I had to go through this in order to be happy. Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah, I, I definitely don't want it to to come off on the like, <laughs> oh, I, had, I had to go through this to be happy because uh, I, yeah. I could have gone through anything and, and been happy, mm. but to, to do the, I guess to do the work of of this of clearing clearing all the the trauma and releasing all the trauma and negativity in my life over the years and mm -hmm. getting to the point where I could because right. I think that was the hardest part for me was logically logically I understood but physically I wasn't letting go of it <laughs> so it's like logically right. yeah that was all crap it was still serving a purpose in some ways, I suspect, right? Yeah, it, yeah. it definitely was, because I, I was still mm. able to hide behind it at that point. Right. Uh, once I got rid of it, I couldn't hide behind it anymore, so now you just mm. get me instead of yes. me behind <gasps> the trauma. Yeah. Ooh. Now we just get you. How does that feel to say that? It feels amazing, because yeah, it's, right? it's the best way to be. <laughs> Best way Pretty to be is so. be you. Yeah. So I feel it, the same way. I feel the same way. And who I am is all of these things. I am it's it's it literally is like Ramdas says, right? Be here now. Yes. And I'm choosing to be here now. I don't have any other choice to be here now, other than to be here now. Yeah. Right? Oh, you know, ben, uh, before we wrap up, I I I have to say this has been a great conversation. I've and, enjoyed myself. Thank you. And I want to make sure that everyone out there, of course, I'm going to shove everything in the show notes like everyone does. And, <laughs> and everyone heard it in the intro, but I always liked having my guest say, where, where can we find you online? Where can we totally. find your book? Where can we do everything? <laughs> Absolutely. Um, best place and all of the links are on uh, benstimpson.com. Um, I have information about my offerings on there. I have a podcast. Um, if you're in the pagan witchcraft kind of metaphysical community, I, um, I, I, I interview all sorts of authors. Um, recently had Devin Hunter, Matt Orin, and, uh, and a load of other uh, bigger names. Um, 
I have uh, all of my information for my courses that I offer. Um, I have information about my various offerings. So I'm accepting clients, um, both counseling and, and spiritual direction clients. Um, and you can also go find my YouTube page on there. That's where a lot of the interviews I, I have. I also have a couple of freebie kind of experientials on there too. Um, and uh, and, uh, and more information on there. So benstimpson.com. And if you feel like connecting with me on Facebook, uh, most of my socials are Ben Stimson Author. So you can find me on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube. And uh, I haven't quite done TikTok yet. I don't know if I will, but... <laughs> I know. I, I can't do it. <laughs> it's... <laughs> it's too much. I know. It's too much. Yeah. Same here. <laughs> Ben, once again, thank you so much for, for chatting. And uh, I i can't wait to see what you do, especially what's coming up, because I you. know you're going to be doing some amazing stuff. So, Thank you so much. This was a pleasure. Thanks for having me on, Stefan. No problem. All right, guys. Until next time. <laughs>